0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jeff Stern and I want to welcome everyone to this month's edition of Keeping It Simple titled Variable or Variant Weather. I'm joined today by Mike Green and Harley Bassman of Simplify and Tian Yang, Chief Executive Officer and Head of Research at Variant Perception. Variant Perception is a macroeconomic research group that caters to hedge funds, banks, and family offices. Tian's work focuses on using proprietary leading indicators to generate actionable investment ideas. Prior to joining Variant Perception, Tian worked as an equity derivatives trader at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, where he was responsible for building out the Delta One Global Index business. Now, before we go ahead and get started, One note for the audience, please go ahead and submit your questions down at the bottom under the Q&A feature, and also a friendly reminder that everything discussed on this call is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Now that our lawyers have been satisfied, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to turn it over to Mike to go ahead and get in today's conversation. Thank you very much, Jeff. Just as a quick point of clarification, lawyers are never satisfied, so we, we will
1: uh, we'll, we'll continue in the best possible framework. Tian, welcome very much. We're, we're thrilled to have you here. I've known Variant Perception for a number of years. I knew Jonathan quite well. Um, can you give us just a little bit more background on yourself and Variant Perception and you know, you, what led you to join Variant Perception and kind of how you guys see yourself as differentiated within the space?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, firstly, like I said, I've been aware of your and Harley's work for a long time as well. So always been a big fan. And, you know, maybe I don't reply always on social media, but definitely lurking and following. Um, So I joined Variant in 2014. So as you mentioned, I was actually hired by Jonathan, um, originally yep. as an analyst. And our philosophy on the market is, is this idea of, you know, man plus machine can be man or machine alone. So we spend a lot of our time building various models of the economy and of asset markets um, and really trying to think from first principles to understand how the w- real world world um, basically works. And then if we truly understand how it works, then taking that and trying to turn it into like some kind of code so that's repeatable going forward. So in a nutshell, that's kind of um the kind of key focus. Got it.
1: And now Jonathan and um, other members of Variant Perception have gone on to do other things jonathan is now currently managing money um for institutional investors he also wrote a fantastic book uh called the myth of capitalism um did you participate in that process at all uh
2: so i put uh a little bit Myth of Capitalism is mostly him i think he gets most of the credit i just get do some of the grunt work
1: Uh, okay excellent and uh that's kind of how harley and i operate i grunt and he does work, work um now, one uh Harley, one quick observation from the audience to start everything off. Would you mind change, changing shirts to be to be seasonally appropriate? Is that possible? Right now Apparently online? pastels pastels are 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 really a post-memorial, post memorial post post memorial day thing, pre Labor Day.
3: Uh you can wear white in California after Labor Day.
1: Oh okay. All right, good to know. So now we now we've located that, that Harley is actually based out of California right now. Um all right, so listen, both I, I think one of the most interesting things is happening here. I noticed Harley was uh, blowing his nose before going in. I've been blowing my nose. Chan, are you sick as well?
2: A little bit, <laughs> little. Yeah,
1: this is this is incredible. This has been the the worst cold season I think I've ever seen. Um, but the one thing that I would say has not caught cold, or at least people don't seem to think it has, has is the U.S. economy. The consumer remains hot. hot. As Harley pointed out in the uh, preliminary, he got the inflation that he requested. So, America, you can blame Harley. Um I personally was disappointed by those inflation numbers. I'd like to see them lower. Harley, what do you think
3: is going on? Um <laughs> God. team transitory. Eventually it will come, it will work. Um we, well, I, it, really for my the, the macro idea here is that the boomers made all the money. Um, and these various studies that people have shown, you've shown a lot of as people age and they retire, they spend less. I think that's, that's probably true for the the, the you know, depression generation or, or, but for us, we have all the money, man. And we're gonna retire and we're gonna spend it. And we're gonna give it to our kids and they're gonna spend it. I think I saw a number that one third of all home sales earlier last year was that were all cash and yep. there's, I mean, they're getting the cash from somewhere. And I think this massive amount of money is going to be passed along or spent. um, And now that they're not working, they can spend even more. They don't have to go to jobs. And this combines with the idea of we're reducing the boomers, taking up productive people, out of society, supply, and we're bringing millennials who are forming households and they're spending to buy baby carriages and cars. And so you have more demand, less supply, and thus you have the inflation. Um, Maybe I'm wrong, but it's a darn good story.
1: No, I, I think it is a darn good story. I think it's wrong. I agree with you, but it's also helpful to know, by the way, for our audience that Harley has all the money. So if you're looking for a cash loan to buy real estate, he is the guy to turn to, apparently. Um, with that said, like you know, I think the interesting dynamic is the question of: Are you consuming more than you were previously? Which is what's required for that increase in demand, and most of the evidence would suggest that actually baby boomers are now consuming less than they were previously, with one notable exception. Unfortunately, as spouses die and you become a widow or a widower, you are imputed to be consuming more housing. Um, so it's going to be very interesting. I mean, it's it, you know, to me, I don't know, Chan, if, if if you want to toss in here, but this narrative of aging populations being very inflationary. I agree, by the way, that they're very supportive for wage rates, but I'm not at all sure that they are supportive for the idea of a growth in aggregate demand. That, that feels like a different factor. Tian, do you have a thought there?
2: Um, yeah. So one of the concepts we use to think about demographics is um kind of analogous to kind of cycles of capital. So in a way, a little bit linked to your points, you can think of young and very old people as consumers, right? And then the middle kind of of the population as kind of savers, right? That's kind of a traditional model. Now, when you do that globally, one of the things people miss is you got to wealth adjust it. Because obviously there might be a lot of young people in Africa and so forth, but a little bit on Harley's point again, a lot of the older rich people in wealthier countries. So when you kind of wealth weight the, the kind of demographics, you actually find a really keen kind of relationship between that and the 10 year. Right over a very long time period. And it kind of makes sense intuitively, because obviously it's about how do you clear the global pool of savings, right? In the long term, presumably 10-year yield should really be clearing kind of the market for savings, right? All the kind of middle-aged rich people have savings and then the people consuming, and you just kind of adjust it. So on that model, we actually have a pretty strong trend for the next 10 years of a higher equilibrium 10-year yield. Right. And so And that's a very strong relationship. It goes back all the way to the sixties. So from 60 to 80, you catch it up 80 to 2010, you catch it down and 2010 is the bottom. And it's, it's, so that's like a very big structural kind of flow concept that is a little bit how we think about the kind of, you know, shift in populations. And so I'm just
1: um, so that actually opens this up. Great. Let's let's pause for one second. We're going to show the poll that we put out on Twitter earlier today, which hits on this idea of inflation. And and I think this is actually pretty consensus. This matches up pretty well with what we're seeing from the Michigan reports, et cetera. Um, if we can pull up those poll results or the, actually I guess the poll question asking, what do we think inflation looks like? There we go. So end of year CPI core inflation for 2024. This would be the equivalent print in December. That would be the December print for January of 2025. Believe it or not, we're all planning on still being around at that point. Harley, you're you're you're, you're still going to be with us by January 2025. Go. I hope, right? Touch and go. Touch and go. Okay, so let's. Uh, we're not hosts and panelists are not allowed to vote, but I'd love to hear what the audience is thinking here. This is going to be interesting to compare this to the results that we pulled off of Twitter earlier today. interesting okay so our audience is less inflation sensitive um let me see if i can pull up the twitter numbers as well i will share my screen just very quickly here so just in comparison on twitter the expectations are clearly for three percent plus inflation um the audience for this is more in the two to three percent range that sounds like we have people that are more um, either economically more bearish or more convinced that the inflation narrative is going to retreat a little bit more this year. Chan, where where do you guys think you're going to see, given your kind of you know the strong alignment that you have with the ten year, which I just want to make very clear for people is actually a slightly different statement, right? So, and I, I do actually think there's a really important point that Chan is bringing up. It's one that Harley emphasizes a lot as well which is this underlying idea that uh, the growth of the economy is relatively closely correlated with the 10-year rate, right? So what you're effectively saying is something very similar to that, that the cost of funds should be similar to something like the opportunity set that's created by, you know, wealth, uh, the existence of wealth and consumption opportunities going forward. That's that's really the relationship that I think you'd be hitting on,
2: right? Yeah, over like a long period, 10 years. Right. And obviously for a long period okay one year out. So I think that puts us more into kind of the, the business cycle cyclical bucket. So obviously yep. we'll have an anchor, but clearly the business cycle metric is going to matter a lot more for kind of that number. And I would say yep. our leading indicators for inflation actually worked really well last year up and down, obviously growth lead indicators across the board failed for the US, but inflation yep. did pretty well. And that's actually starting to bottom. So we foresaw the kind of disinflation that we're starting to see from Q4 to now, it will probably go a little bit more by, sus- well, we think it's more gonna be um, kind of a bottoming out process. So two to three feels about right. There's not that much to give you worry cyclically right now, but obviously given how aggressively people think the Fed's gonna cut, that's probably where the kind of divergence is. Um, so, so this that- is...
1: Yeah, so, so this is one of the charts that you actually shared with us, um, you know, looking at things, for example, you have your own forecast, but one of the charts that you highlighted was the NFIB small business uh, pricing plans and the fact that that has now turned higher. So I'm sharing this chart. Hopefully people can see this. I'm having a few problems with my monitors. It's probably something tied to my sickness or the fact that I'm now down in the South. Harley's in California. I'm Actually, in Fairhope, Alabama, which uh, uh, is an unusual uh, destination for me. I'm loving it down here. It's fantastic. All of you down in the South, uh, uh, you, you definitely have figured out a higher quality of life and a more enjoyable framework than those who are trapped in the Northeast. Um, the, I, part of the point that I would make on this is that we actually have a really interesting challenge. Because in order to develop relationships that tell us meaningful clues on inflation, we actually have to have some inflation variability. And so the chart on the right, I'm actually breaking that down and looking at the dynamics of the NFIB price plans versus inflation. And you know, one of the things that jumps out is, is I can't actually construct whether this is a leading indicator or a lagging indicator. And I'd, I'd be interested in your reaction to that, right? It, it feels very much to me that small businesses are both reacting to changes in inflation, and we're seeing almost equal explanatory power with moderate leads.
2: What's your what's your thinking there? Um, so we, the way we kind of search for lead indicators is slightly different. So our, our emphasis is kind of purely on correlating turning points rather than okay. kind of the overall explanatory power, right? So, you know, if you think about the economy trying to forecast a level is basically like an impossible task, because clearly, as things are dynamic, it's endogenous, the coefficient is going to change all the time. But when you think about the sequencing in the economy, turning points have a pretty reliable kind of sequence in terms of this happens first, right? It just sometimes there's a longer lag or shorter lag. So there's lots of these kind of relationships, where if we can find the, the turning point correlation, and then use that to screen for inputs, we can create models that are a bit more sensitive with the turns. uh, And that's kind of what we're using. So, I mean, if you want to get all geeky, we do like Fisher Fisher transforms on the data and then try and correlate those. But, But basically the idea is that, do you have a reasonable thing where if you see a turning point, suddenly you care. The rest of the time when it's trending, then obviously the standard models do a pretty good job, right? You only really care when it's going to have a turn.
1: So uh, just very quickly a Fisher transform is effectively just looking at a z score of deviation from a trend is that a, cr- a correct interpretation um, of of the simplified
2: way to think about it Uh yeah well you can imagine so like for example you got the chart up here with like the the core CPI right and obviously after 21 the, the, the black line goes through the roof Once you transform the data you basically just compress it onto the same scale so effectively now the two thousand, the mid 2000 kind of pump at the top is the same magnitude as like the mid at the late uh 2000s and then you basically compress it down so basically now when you run statistics or things you're not affected by the distortions right like all the turning points kind of look the same and there's like a magnitude thing breaking it that's kind of a little bit what it does
1: so it it effectively is reducing the Outlier impact. It's not quite Windsorization, but it's transforming the data yeah, to achieve something similar of. to Windsorization. Okay. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Got it. Um, so one of the things that that y- you know you have highlighted in the materials that you shared with us is one that feels very topical, which is this underlying idea of, you know, what is liquidity and what does it actually mean? And so if I if if I think about the themes that you kind of shared with us you know, in preparation for this call, I just wanna run through kind of the key points and then I wanna jump into some of the individual components of it. First, as you looked at the US, you are highlighting that the consumers still spending, that labor hoarding effectively, companies being unwilling to let workers go, despite the fact that we've seen demand deteriorate, particularly in areas like manufacturing, construction, et cetera, that that's giving consumers a false sense of job security that's allowed them to continue to spend and yet, interestingly enough, their personal finances are very clearly deteriorating. Um, you suspect that once profit margin pressures start to bite, the labor cracks will go from gradual to a sudden deterioration. Can you expand
2: on that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So the easiest way that uh, you can visualize labor holdings is to look at um, surveys of hiring intentions versus earnings. So you know, the 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 kind of most egregious one we show is within the NFIB survey, where the actual realized earnings have been pretty poor, right, and and trending down since COVID, mm-hmm. but hiring intentions have remained very elevated. And what's very interesting is, you know, these time series go back decades, right, and historically, yep. clearly they're correlated because almost by definition, as a business, if you're not making money, why do you want to hire people? Um, and what happened after COVID was that that relationship broke. So even though earnings came off, hiring intentions have stayed elevated, you know, much higher than, than where earnings have gone. And, you know, it kind of makes sense, right? And there's lots of explanations, you know, whether it's like the, the, the demographic shifts in terms of the labor market or like work from home or like, you know, everyone has all this excess savings. People don't want to do the jobs. Various reasons or another, Um, you've had a situation where, you know, Businesses have struggled to find labor. And, you know, there's lots of things on surveys on quality of labor and so forth. So clearly, they're going to be a lot more reluctant than a normal business cycle to lay off workers, right? It's going to be like the last cost they cut, and they're going to have to like let other costs go first. Now, obviously, this varies by sector, because clearly, if you're a tech company, and everybody's been studying computer science, you know, for the last 20 years, there's an abundance of software engineers, you're not worried about laying people off, right? You can get them back, you don't have to overpay. If you're like, industrial company, you like an energy company, like how many like, you know, you know, geothermal scientists, whatever, our geology scientists have, have been graduating, right? So there's like a, there's been this, in a way, like a capital cycle almost within the labor market in terms of which areas are being hot and it's affecting kind of this um ability for companies to hire uh the kind of right workers. And so that's why I think is contributing to, the, to this kind of seeming um, kind of contradiction, right? Where on the one hand, leading indicators are bad. On the one hand, companies are concerned about, you know, the outlook. Yet the labor market has clearly been, you know, very resilient. And you only ever see these kind of layoffs coming in the kind of, you know, we would say capital abundance sectors, right? The sectors that they're not worried about labor. And so I think that's kind of the, the explanation. And how long does this last? Well, it, it lasts until you run out of kind of the, the kind of spare margin these businesses have right if things truly deteriorate enough you know you're going to have to be forced into layoffs and so i think that's where the kind of idea of gradual and sudden right you know to quote the hemingway bankruptcy kind of thing it, it should be a yep. very exaggerated impact where as a business you're probably holding off until the absolute last moment you, you're really going to have to be forced into it.
1: so that's actually a really interesting point though that you bring up which is the difference in the construction or the difference in the supply of labor in areas that have experienced tremendous growth, whether that's software engineering or computer science that have not yet seen the huge productivity improvements. I mean, it's interesting as we think about things like the implications of chat, GPT, et cetera, on potential productivity or automation tools in programming uh, productivity occurring in the software engineering space, which really hasn't hit previously. Versus what you're highlighting, like there's still significant shortages of oil field drill, drill workers, et cetera, construction workers, plumber, you know, particularly in the skilled trades, things like plumbers, et cetera. Those are very hard to replace. And so what you're highlighting is is that those are the areas where we're actually seeing the labor, labor hoarding. We're not necessarily seeing it at Microsoft or others who are well supplied in their labor, whether it's domestically or through things like, uh, uh, you know, H one B visas type type dynamic. I, that's that's actually a really interesting point. It's one I'd not heard emphasized before. Do you do you see one of the things? One of the charts that I would would highlight is this underlying issue of. Um, Small business, you know, I agree with you that it is very interesting, right? I'll I'll use the uh, proverbial loaded phrase that small businesses continue to emphasize that they can't find workers, even as I look at things like their small business sales and their sales expectations look incredibly recessionary, right? I mean, this is about as ugly as it gets. This is data sets to your point going back into the 1970s we've just never seen anything like this outside of, you know, the global financial crisis. Now the question is, and this is something we were talking about beforehand, like we've been in this cycle for so long that unless an additional catalyst emerges, this is one of your second points, you know, do we actually see a restocking and a recovery period,
2: even if the economy is not quote unquote strong? Um, Yeah. And by the way, if you look at the, uh, the NFIB components on labor and also on uh, loan availability, those are the ones that go all the way back to 70s. Yeah. They give you a phenomenal lead on kind of per corporate profits, like just phenomenal and like working yeah. over decades and decades. And obviously, the, the intuition is that they're clearly a non-discretionary expenses, right? Generally, your labor and, and your financing costs are very significant and usually non-discretionary. So there is a persistent kind of headwind there. And obviously, as kind of the lagged effects of interest rates follow through you know, that headwind is clearly going to be there. Like, you know, one of the big things, you know, it got really hard on Twitter last year was, you know, these charts of like net interest payments are going down yep. even as hiking. And like, you just have to look at the chart, just push it forward. Right. That's like a two year. Yep. So like uh, there's a lot of these relations that suggest the headwinds are, are coming on costs. So it's really now contingent on extra stimulus to force revenues and demand up, otherwise profits are gonna get hurt, right? And so this c- comes back ultimately to kind of the, the 2023 discussion, right? Fiscal, right? If yeah. you, it's like the most obvious answer, yeah, run 7% of GDP, great. But now you're gonna to have to maintain it. And then what, what's kind of the extra on top of that if costs are truly gonna pick up? And that's, I think the, the kind of crux of, um, of what's gonna happen here, right? Like where, where's that extra stimulus gonna come from? If the government cannot maintain the same pace of um fiscal stimulus. So I think that's why ultimately in the US, it feels like the risk is somewhat uh to the downside in terms of the, the, you know, obviously we're pricing a soft landing, right? And then clearly the economic data has been pretty good. So yeah, that's kind of if I was to take it through, that's probably where where it shakes out.
1: Okay. Apologize, I'm having some troubles with my screen, so it makes it more difficult for me to share some of these slides. I'm going to try one more time. Then I may hand it over to Brian to drive here if I, I continue to have challenges. Um, so this is this is really hitting on the second component of your 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 arguments, right? That the EPS estimates are defying negative guidance, job openings, and higher rates. We're seeing the pressures building on the cost side. The question really becomes: Do we get that additional stimulus? And kind of it, it you know, even though it caught some headlines today, like. The idea that we're going to have a hundred billion tax cut, you know, strikes me as in the greater scheme of running a $2 trillion deficit as we've run in the past year as a very modest incremental fiscal stimulus. Do you see it differently? Do you see continued fiscal pulse? And this almost overlaps then with the MMT type framework, you know, where my my good friend and I emphasize good friend, somebody I respect a lot. Warren Mosler is highlighting dynamics that, you know, as long as the US is running these types of monetary or uh, type of fiscal um, deficits that getting a recession becomes very hard. Do you do you do you have a different perspective on that, or do you share his underlying perspective?
2: Um, I think getting a kind of you know oh like G GFC like you you want like a, a you know big daddy recession, then yeah, I think it's gonna be hard. But if yep. you want to get some you know earnings down right like some you know like a, kind of a reset then it obviously depends on how the rest economy reacts, right? Like the whole difficulty and I guess the fun of analyzing the macroeconomy is it's not a static thing. It's not like I can hold everything else the same and I just pump up fiscal and then clearly everything works, right? Just even historically in recessions, you can run big fiscal deficits, right? And it hasn't mattered. So it's really about how the kind of different pieces fit together. And so Mm -hmm. I think... On the fiscal side, the impulse is actually marginally negative. The key for this year is more about will the Fed do the preemptive cuts, even if we don't get kind of the, the, the bad data, right? Because the the only comparable scenario to today now is 1967 in terms of a soft landing. And the reason I say that is the, the, the divergence between leading indicators and coincident indicators in the US is obviously absolutely epic, right? And this is like obviously a, a historic lead lag. And so the, the the closest analogy we can find is 67, where basically the Fed went big, cut rates a bunch, ultimately facilitated the kind of more inflationary end to the 60s in terms of the 69, 70, but they'd staped off a recession, right? That 67 was the only situation where leading indicators looked really, really bad.
1: So and, let, let, let's jump to, let's jump to wait,
3: a couple of slides on that. How do you mention MMT with a straight face? Haven't we shot this thing down yet? They print money to get inflation, and then we're going to solve it by the government cutting spending. Like that's a laugh. That's not going to happen. So there was a. Well, you know, again,
1: Harley, this is, is one fantasy. of these challenges, and and we, you know, we really have to get Warren on with uh, with you at some point. Um, you know, the 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 challenge on MMT is it is descriptive of the way the world works, right? It is an accurate representation of a fiat based model what you're correctly highlighting and and by the way i agree with you is it still matters how you spend the money right so if i choose to spend a whole bunch of money adding to the productive capacity of my country i'm going to have very different long-term results than if i spend a lot of money buying lottery tickets for my citizens um you know that that's just a different outlook so it you know when when you talk about mmt framework this question of are they increasing the quantity of income that is flowing to the private sector that is being handed from the aggregate social purse? They, you know, you, you can't really argue with that. I'm not sure that I. I'm not sure what your pushback is.
3: This whole thing is rainbows and unicorns. Okay. Uh, well, you know, keep, I'd keep I'd on like going. To believe
1: in both. They're both beautiful. Uh, um, all right. So, so you, ten, you, you approached 2023. I think from a very thoughtful perspective one of the things that you were highlighting is, is that you know we can explain 2023 largely on the basis of positioning that people had gotten super super bearish and the liquidity component more than anything else is just people reversing elements of that. we didn't quite get down you know it's interesting if you look at the risk on positioning from somebody like a State Street investor confidence index, you know we treated 2022 December 2022 looked an awful lot like late 2008. Um, you know the immediate aftermath of COVID, etc. Is there is there something else that that you would highlight? You've you've mentioned this idea of liquidity, and a lot of people have talked about this framework of liquidity. So let's take the positioning for a given. What does liquidity mean to you? And how are you thinking about
2: it? Um, yeah. So obviously, as we as we were discussing before we started recording, right? It's kind of the Supreme Court definition of pornography, right? It feels right. like. It- it means something different to everybody. So the work we did was on trying to reconcile, like all the different ideas, right? Because, you know, no one's stupid in here, right? And people have logical arguments. The question was, is there some first principles ways to tie it together, right? There's on the one hand, how do you tie together bank reserves, RP, TGA, right, that mechanical impact? What about M2? Right? What about um, credit spreads? What about the curve? What about real yields? And so it turns out, I think one of the best concepts to think about it is um, from Perry Merling of mm-hmm. you know, Zoltan's mentor fame. Now, yep. but, you know, his, his work is unreal. It's so good where he talks about this idea of the hierarchy of money. So you can imagine like a pyramid where at the top is kind of the, the, the bank reserves of the, the high power money and you have deposits, right? And then the deposits are further, and the further below deposits in the pyramid is like loans and then below that securities. Right. So the high pile money the tops enables the layers further down. and so we're obviously as investors mostly in the securities layer and we're impacted by all the things above it. And so this is a really nice framework because it can be used when central banks intervene when they don't it can explain historically why things like credit spreads all these things mattered. But the key thing to know is we're living a different monetary policy regime these days right after the GFC the Fed obviously won paid, well does a bunch of things right run the excess reserve regime. They pay interest on um reserves, right? They intervene in all sorts of asset markets, right? Traditionally, we have this concept of central banks as lenders are last resort, right? SVB happens. We the banks you know, use reserves to support deposits, <laughs> and that's it. But these days, obviously, you know, what is QE, right? We'll go in and intervene directly in the securities layer. So there's lots of different changes that's impacting this kind of traditional hierarchy of money. And so. When we think about it like that, you can actually measure the ratio between this high power money to low to kind of the the, the lower quality money, right? And I think that's like the key thing we want to measure. Um, the way Perry Merlin talks about intuitively is like in the good times, everything's worth part, right? You know your Bitcoin, you know your your meme stock, you think it's going to be worth a dollar, maybe it's even more, and you think it's the same as one dollar in the bank. And the SVB happens, you realize. Your $1 SVB might be, you know, 95 cents, let alone whatever else you own. So this thing only matters, obviously, when bad things happen. So so by measuring the ratio between these things, it's almost like a, a margin of safety measure in the same way PE ratios are. And that's almost the exact analogy where your equity earnings are what's available to support the market cap, right? That's basically the way to think about it. So when we think about liquidity, we should think about how much high power money is there to support deposits, how much deposits are there to support like credit, and how much credit is there to support kind of you know broader securities. And so that's kind of the analogy to, to PE. And so a lot of including ourselves, right? One of the, the kind of errors of omission we made historically was to think about liquidity as a rate of change concept too much, right? Did yep, interest yep. rates go up? Did these rates of change go down? But in a way, that's very similar to the idea of, you know, like a P ratio is a five times and it goes up to 10 times. Sure, it double, but 10 times P is still probably a reasonable level, right? That you have a reasonable margin of safety. And I think that was a little bit of the realization in that we needed like the equivalent level measure for liquidity and not just use all the kind of rate of change stuff. And so obviously, it's quite hard to take these all into one number. But the, the bottom left hand chart is basically a representation. Of it, well, to me, I just z-scored it to make the make it fit on the line. Where essentially, if the if the red line is really high, it's telling you this is a great time. There's tons of margin of safety in the kind of liquidity money market stack. And then when this line is super low, it's telling you there's a lack of margin of safety across the entire hierarchy of money. So,
1: so and and, and I would just highlight that there are components of that that are not just the quantity dynamics, but also effectively the animal spirits component. You referred to this. I always. You know, remember back in the late 1990s I would speak to people who had in you know pre-IPO investments and stuff and they would literally talk about it as if well, you know, well that's 10 million dollars, right? And it was, you know, no liquidity to it, no actual underlying cash component or value. It was just an expectation of how much something would be worth in the future, and crazily enough people believed deeply enough that they were spending that. I think we you you alluded to Bitcoin or some other components as well. There might be elements of that in play today, but that's you're not actually incorporating that variable multiplier as you're thinking about this type. This is this is much more just the ratio that you're utilizing here. Is that correct? Um
2: yeah. So we're actually trying to get a measure of the level of all market cap of yep. kind of securities, right? And the level of all loans. So it's kind of the ratio between the levels. So um Obviously, ultimately, it's a proxy, but you know, if you want to build a simple version, the Fed flow of funds obviously has fantastic data. It's just a bit slow every quarter, right? So you can actually build this out uh, using that data as well. Um, And the key takeaway was that, again, obviously with the benefit hindsight, not surprising, but just given the sheer magnitude of stimulus in the system, and given obviously in twenty two, the entire market cap securities really went down. You had a lot of kind of, you know, high power money at the top, supporting like a lower kind of market cap at the bottom, right? And then all it took was the Fed and, you know, BTFP after SVB to say stuff and then slowly but surely this no- ratio need is normalized. So so the main takeaway is that from a level point of view, in terms of the margin of safety embedded in the entire kind of monetary system, we're only at neutral right now in terms of levels, but the rate of change is negative, right? So that's a little bit how, um. I will conceptualize liquidity's impact right now.
1: So if, if I'm looking at a, at a chart like here on the yeah. top right, which is the business cycle um, financing index, leading risk assets, you, you know, I don't see the same dynamic that I'm seeing in the bottom right-hand side where the Merling multiplier effectively popped. So, so, so if I'm distinguishing between these two, you would effectively say the liquidity is going to be the most important component the business cycle component is going to be a secondary indicator in part because unless things get so bad in the business cycle, I'm not necessarily going to have to challenge my belief structure, right? A good, you know, really simple example would be a company goes bankrupt. If the economy goes through a Lehman type moment, they can't access their cash because we didn't experience anything like that. Even as the business cycle indicator looks to be as weak as it was in 2008. It doesn't have the same
2: impact. Is that a reasonable interpretation of those two charts? Um yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I would just think of obviously BCFI, we call it BCFI, but just think of it as like, did interest rates go up or down? Right. So it's effectively saying interest rate if interest rates went up a lot. So you know the overall business cycle finances conditions getting worse, right? That's kind of what it's saying. Whereas the bottom one is effectively like what's the PE ratio for or the bottom left is what is the PE ratio? but used in the liquidity context and the bottom right is what's the change in the pe ratio but 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 again just to orient people
1: to this so if i'm thinking about the, the merely multiplier that would be the equivalent of saying what's the ratio of credit
2: outstanding to m2 uh, what, what's the yeah it's a, it's an average of all the ratios so what's the Correct. ratio of reserves outstanding to deposits outstanding what's the ratio of deposits outstanding to loans outstanding and what's the ratio of loans outstanding to securities outstanding
1: Got it. Okay. And and so is is there a particular weight that's being put onto a base layer versus the next layer? Or is it just a true average?
2: Um, I've just, I've just simple averaged it because obviously it's just to give you the concept. Yeah.
1: Got it. Okay. All right. That's super, super helpful because the chart above is, I think, you know, very similar to the types of charts that I'm seeing over and over and over again, this idea of the alligator jaws that have effectively opened up Between what we would think of as traditional indicators, something like a business cycle. Your point is it's on interest rates. Um, again, there's some modification that's occurring here, but you know, ultimately what what you're saying is is that the traditional signs of tightness have gone up. I would incorporate things like the SLUs, I would incorporate things like the ISM, et cetera. And and that's telling me that like credit conditions should be really, really tight. The credit spread should be really wide. um, very much like what you're seeing in this top chart, but you're highlighting that the existence of, a, of an adequate supply of liquidity has forestalled that day of reckoning, at least for now.
2: Yeah. And yeah. obviously, a fa- so it's again, it's just a potential. It's like how big can the potential move be, right? If you show 100 PE stock, you obviously have got more upside than shorting a 5 PE stock. So that would be the kind of idea.
3: Can I jump in here for a second?
2: Yeah, Please. Is it I'm struggling
1: p- with that last one. I want to think about it.
3: Is is it possible that R star has just gone up by a lot?
1: That's the next slide. That's exactly where I, that's that's exactly what I wanted to do was I'm, go to this slide, which mean, is looking at variant versus Williams. What changed? So so your dashed line is is
2: effectively the same as saying R star. Yes. Yeah. And all we've done and, is just try to take only fit the model to pre-COVID conditions and then just let the kind of really volatile COVID data play out in 2021, 22, and then just let it obviously behave naturally now. Right. So obviously, you know, those spikes down is because the data got all messed up, right? From COVID, you had, you know, all the annualized things changed, but now it's kind of suggesting, yeah, that this is obviously real neutral rate, call it 175, right? Plus or minus. So depending what you think inflation is going to be you know let's say two and a half right reasonable anywhere to two and a half like yeah so nominal probably like four that's probably a fair you know neutral nominal rate if the fed achieves that inflation target
3: and we keep talking about about how we're restrictive and the feds taking rates up by 500 basis points in a, a year and a half um and the economies we have unemployment under four. We have, I mean, whatever inflation is. But I mean, the, the economy is growing at, you know, two and a half and change. I mean, what if our stars four and change now? I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't see where the restrict, where any evidence of there being restrictive on the economy. I mean, I guess you have some underlying numbers that you point to, Mike, but on the top line, it ain't happening. Well,
1: I mean, the obvious point that I would highlight, I mean, one, um, you know, What Chen has done here is they fit to the data as compared to articulate a statement as to what the underlying R star should be, correct?
2: Yeah. This is just based on the current constant data. Yeah. The second component
1: is is that when I ultimately think about something like R star, it's ultimate, it, it has to be a function of the quantity increase in labor in our term, in, in, you know, unit terms that's available to me. And the number of uh, the, the amount of productivity that I can expect from each of those units of labor. So when I when I look at a world like we had in 1900, in which Americans are working six hours, six days a week, 16 hours a day, basically getting no sleep in many productive situations. The only way for the hours to grow is for the quantity of people to grow. And in fact, as living standards rose, the hours shrunk. I think one of the interesting questions for me right now is is this issue of how do we actually see that expanding? How do we see that changing? It's very clear, I think, that people have been able to add some productive hours by cutting out commuting. But it's not at all clear to me that the capacity for significant productivity enhancements are there unless we start changing the composition of our economy pretty significantly. Chen, do you have a different view in terms of what the potential looks like?
2: Um, I think I probably more uh, broadly agree with you. Mike, and four for real our star seems pretty pretty aggressive. That probably means like GBT really needs to take off. And we're gonna get a bunch of you know real growth. Yeah, that's that's kind of my
1: take, and 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 I would it, you know I I would also emphasize the economic possibilities for our grandchildren aspect of it, which, which most of the indications I'm seeing are that people would actually prefer to work fewer hours even as they're getting paid more and effectively have less share going to the owners of capital that strikes me as one of the key risks um that we need to consider going forward Is the societal framework has has apparently changed somewhat
3: but how come one of your inputs is not just the flood of money a paper money the fed printed and the, and the massive that debt- wouldn't be a
1: real concept right
3: I mean, just, we've, we've massively altered the amount of money in the market relative to um, to GDP and, and population, haven't we?
1: But that would show up, I mean, that's the whole point that you've made, right? That would be a one-off shift in the price level.
3: Maybe having this larger pool of money, it just means you have to go and hit the brakes harder to go and stop the car.
2: So that same velocity of money picks up, right? And.
3: I, I I just I mean we keep looking as Mike says these alligator jaws of things happening. I mean may, maybe one of the jaws is in the wrong way because we're using a you know an old paradigm. I
1: I I think that's actually I mean while I disagree with it I actually do think it's an important consideration. But, right? Because, what are the because, paths, because
3: like, Bloomberg slide you had there.
1: The Bloomberg slide. This one you're talking about?
3: No, um, Yeah. Why do you think for like. 20 years, it's a relatively stable number. And then all of a sudden, since the Fed start printing money or doing what getting more involved, it's become very volatile. I
1: don't I don't think that's what it is at all. I think this is I, I, I would highlight that this, this is the emergence of China's most favored nation status, which distinctly benefited large business over small business.
3: Okay. I mean something's clearly changed, right?
1: It might. This is, you know, this is the interesting question, right? I mean, this is the dichotomy that seems to have emerged. I would highlight that small businesses are experiencing exceptionally high interest rates. Large, you know, we see this in the financing numbers. Chan was highlighting the cost of financing that we can get from the NFIB numbers or the average rate that they're received, they're paying. Those numbers are now, I believe, about 9.8% is the number we're getting from the NFIB. That's dramatically higher than the rate that Apple is paying, for example. Um, the advantages just continue to accumulate for the larger companies. And that certainly, I think, actually plays through to the higher profit margins that we're seeing for corporations. We're just not seeing that in small business. I mean, I'm sure somewhere in our audience there's a distinctive overrepresentation of small business individuals. Um, I assure you, if I could physically and I weren't sick, I would give you a hug because it feels very ugly out there for small business.
2: Ken, do you, do you do you see it differently or I, I don't have that strong a view on uh, yeah, obviously I agree with the small business, small and large, right? And we see that in the price action, right? We see that in the quality of balance sheets. Uh yeah, so, so that I agree with, but yeah, I think this whether there's being a it's a fundamental regime shift. Um, you know, we wrote a big white paper, on, you know, we call it age of scarcity, right? And the core idea was that, you know, this we've experienced decades of kind of cheap credit cheap labor, cheap commodities, and if all three start to reverse at the same time, like on a kind of look forward basis, then clearly, um, you know, th- that that kind of necessitates a completely different kind of asset allocation shift. So I still think structurally, that's probably where we're going, but obviously that's like a much more five year plus kind of view. But um, for us, those view, you know, what's driving those views is a lot of our kind of capital cycle work, right? Where we've noticed kind of just the years of underinvestment in certain sectors and just kind of overcommitment of money and, and kind of people and, and money into certain other sectors, right? So, so I think that's more the um, the outcome. Um, I, if you want to talk about what's really going to shift, it feels more like clearly politics has shifted. So ultimately fiscal monetary policy is going to be a bit more coordinated. You're, you're clear in the environment where, you know, fiscal is going to be more political as well. So the credit allocation mechanism is going to be worse. So a lot of these things are kind of more likely to be structural inflationary, right? The people who are going to get credit is if you're green, you have any kind of eco angle to it. You can benefit. You'll get, the, you know, all the tax deductions. Whereas if you have some business that isn't in that bucket, clearly you're disadvantaged. So I think there's a, those are probably like the more obvious shifts we see in explaining what's changing. Um, That credit is just much, much more kind of, you know, the allocation of credit is much more politically driven
3: respecting that we're a, an investment show we have to feed the beast um looking at all your charts and graphs over here where would you point investors not specific stocks or names but just in general are you favorable to to equities to bonds to commodities to oil like what is the is the is the medium term you know you know projection of where you think we should be you know overweighting our portfolios
2: yeah um well obviously Holly, the reason we connect connected was we you know we want our we've been pitching long tips and long mbs and in particular specifically you know what you guys have put out right in terms of you know making sure you get the
1: no no just be clear yeah so
2: i think so long tips long mbs in terms of fixing home bucket within equities um you know long energy uh long ems so i think um broadly speaking it's more the fact that today is very interesting because there's a big divergence in what asset prices have discounted in terms of hard and soft landing, right? So, yeah, you can be like, I'm bullish bonds or I'm, I'm bearish bonds or equities. But the point is, under the hood, there's like a massive divergence, right, within each asset class. So, yeah, if you look at equities, then, you know, large cap US clearly has a lot of good news priced in, but there's a lot of sectors that don't. So, if you're long defensives, long staples, right, utility healthcare, you probably have a lot more upside. Um, than just generically saying going long S&P, right? So for us, I think we still want to be a bit more defensively positioned within the kind of main portfolio exposure. So overweight tips, MBS, and that's your kind of main fixed income bucket. Within equities, there's more tilt towards, again, defensive sectors, but also tagging on some things like EM, you know, uh, energy, right? That's been beaten up. Um, Oil is very interesting because being long oil, if you have a risk-off, might sound like you're doubling up, but clearly oil's come off a lot. You know, we're rebuilding the strategic petroleum reserve in the US. Um, a lot of bad news being discounted in there, and there's obviously a lot of worries about geopolitics or whatever, right? So like your main, so like you know, it's quite nice is that it's got a lot of bad news priced in. There's a lot of different risk off that might make it go up. So yeah, broadly I would say, you know, underweight equities, overweight bonds, but within equities there's obviously pockets of value, just like within bonds probably still time to stay away from nominals and focus on kind of where you can pick up good valuation, right? And that's obviously in the spreads and in real yields.
3: And when looking at all your charts, I mean, and the ones Mike has also, you have these nice, beautiful little relationships that go on for decades. And all of a sudden, we have the the alligator jaws happening everywhere on everything that we can't explain. can, Can I draw a lesson from that that some things happen that we don't understand, and maybe the whole concept of value investing is out the window that the whole Benjamin Graham that it's that, useless now, that there's other things that drive investments. I mean, Mike would say it's it's indexing that's driving it as opposed to value. Um, do you have a thought on that? I mean, I mean, I mean, is there a value to actually looking under the hood at, at, at a discounted cash flow or is it something else that is more important?
2: Sorry. Um yeah, no, I hear you. I think one of the um uh, yeah, one of the concepts coming is clearly whether the relationships that are still working and where isn't, right? And if, and clearly be, going and prioritizing that is important. So, one of the interesting things about 23 was lead indicators did kind of work for Europe, right? It, You know, for China, right? China reopening was a dull lead indicator, saw that. Um, Europe disinflation, both also Europe recession, they saw that. So, it's really specifically within US consumer and US labor market. That's kind of that percent of things that broke, right? We still had industrial production was down, manufacturing was obviously here, obviously housing's gone through its own cycle. So that's why I think going back to the kind of maybe, maybe it's a good way to circle back to that kind of the beginning of the conversation. In, in my mind, the whole focus is labor hoardings impact and um uh the US consumer, right? And the fact that it's tied into it. And the fact that in our in our view, yeah, maybe it's labor hoarding, maybe it's the Jordan access savings, maybe it's the fiscal. But what's really, really interesting is that when you look at consumer real consumption, out of COVID you had to step up in the level of real durable goods consumption, right? And since then it just got grown at trend basically from this higher level without any give back. In most normal business cycle, inventory cycles, there's a bullwhip inventory cycle effect where once you kind of over consume it kind of feeds through the supply chain, and then there's like a, you draw down inventories, they rebuild inventories, and there's a short. What's really interesting, that's like a very persistent divergence. And I think that's where the opportunity is going to be, because there's um, actually gaps opening up, right? You have companies that over-earned for two, three years out of COVID, suddenly it's disappointing, and the stocks get hammered, whereas you have others that are still going up, and it's going fine. So I wouldn't say it's broken in that it's just a blanket, it's broken, right? Lots of pockets of this framework still work. The key is to understand why kind of certain segments haven't. And obviously because it's the U.S., it's very high profile. But, you know, we've hit on some of that in terms of fiscal labor hoarding and so forth. Um, yeah, so so that's probably the, the way I would think about it. It's a very valid question to be like, is leading indicator just wrong?
3: It makes right. me wonder, I mean, Mike has data going back to caveman times. Um, somehow he makes them up. And it's making me think that maybe we're looking at the entirely wrong... Window of time. I mean, people look at the at World War II or they look at the 20s. I mean, is it possible that really what we should be looking at is like the 1880 to 1910 of the Gilded Age when we had seriously when we had monopolies running the the, the world. I mean, right now the Mag Seven basically is our legal monopolies that have infinite pricing power. I mean, maybe that's what's going on here is that we basically we don't have competition anymore. I mean, is, is that possible?
2: Um, yeah, I think c- certainly, obviously, you know, going back to even right at the beginning of the conversation, Jonathan wrote the book, you know, in terms of oligopolies, pricing power, uh, and so forth. So clearly that dynamic um, is in place, but obviously, you know, history just rhymes, right? It doesn't repeat fully. And I would say the biggest shift is that, you know, people's understanding of how the world works improves over time and data is more available over time. So, it's you know, if we can all see that same data you know, it probably won't play out exactly the same. And if anything, the way I would think about it is maybe it's so hard going back to why it didn't work is positioning and these things matter, right? People are a lot more aware of what's going on. So in addition to trying to understand what will happen, it's even more important ever to learn how to play the game of investing, right? Understanding how the people position where the divergences are and then actually trying to take advantage of that. That's probably more how how I would think about it because these questions are obviously very hard to answer. I can't give you a good answer, but I suspect you know the the policy regimes are very different, right? Central banks, you know, lenders are last resort. All the things we talk about are different, and that's probably more what's driving it than you know, like the you know, wild days of you know Rockefeller and you know you can get away with anything.
1: Well, I I, I actually would extend kind of what Harley was saying. And, and, you know, Robert Hall has actually written a recent paper on, on this. Um, it, you know, others have highlighted this, this idea that is dismissively referred to as many who are ardently pro-capitalist without fully understanding the complexities around that dynamic. And just to be clear, I'm about as capitalist as somebody can get. But the the, the point that, that he would raise is is that when you experience a major shock like COVID, it actually becomes much easier for companies that are in olig- 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 oligopoly or in a monopoly to raise prices under the rubric of, oh, well, you know, everyone, prices are going higher, right? We have to raise so that we can get our part. And people oddly stop in comparison shopping. They basically decide that they can't really worry that much about it. We were in some ways trained for this by things like toilet paper shortages during COVID, where we basically said, just buy it if it's available. Um, Now there's evidence that that seems to be breaking down. We're seeing particularly the consumer packaged goods, the staples providers are suggesting that there's increasing price sensitivity that's re-emerging. Chen, are you seeing any evidence of that in your work or is there anything else that's going on?
2: Yeah, because this is the whole greenflation, right? I think it is uh, Professor Isabella Weber's kind of main thing. So we actually thought that was a really cool idea and essentially basically tried to do the very similar methodology. So it's possible to quantify how much of inflation is being driven by labor versus corporate profits. And for sure, out of COVID, you had kind of basically two years of you know, inflation pulling up corporate profits. That's basically ended, right? So it's no longer pushing up corporate profits because it's not necessarily a detractor. So I think that would broadly fit. Like, you, you can actually quantify this, yeah.
1: And so are you finding that that's actually the underlying case, that there was more of a push from the capital side than from others or what? what's, yeah. what's your?
2: Yeah. So th- definitely out of COVID for like the first two years, um, corporations managed to boost profits from inflation, which historically is obviously quite rare. And so th- to your point, they more than raised the pr- our prices to compensate for how much their costs were going up.
3: That's the so-called greedflation.
2: Yes. Yeah. But if you yeah, imagine it, it, quarter on quarter, and, it's kind of diminished already. Right,
1: and, and and you know, this is, I think it is actually important. I think it's an overly dismissed component for many in the industry, right? Uh, th- this idea that corporations suddenly got greedy. No, that's not the case. It's just their capacity to actually exploit that was improved by the volatility that we experienced.
2: Yeah, right? Temporary I mean, monopolies across the board, right? Once the right. supply chain shuts down, everybody has a monopoly.
1: Correct. So that, that, you know, that one, once the minute you move into that, you start, the other component is, is that if you actually have pricing power, you immediately move to a lower level of production that can create persistence in inflation. We definitely are seeing components of that. I see Jeff and his his, his gingerness has showed up and we are, uh, that, that tends to be the clue that we are being given the classic uh, uh,
0: sheep's hook, uh, shepherd's hook. Uh, Jeff, is that indeed the case? Yeah, sorry to play time police, uh, gentlemen, but uh, That's yeah. That's okay, we understand. Out. Okay, fantastic. All right, well, listen, Chan, this was really excellent. Um,
1: we have uh, three presentations from you. Is it possible for us to include links to those, include those on our website so that we can distribute those to the people who attended?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Fantastic. And if people wanna follow you, they can find you on Twitter at Variant Perception V-R-N-T
2: perception is that correct uh yeah i mean we're we're probably not as prolific uh, as you um but obviously that's okay very very very
1: few people are either as, as 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 prolific or as handsome as me but the um the the so if we want to find you on twitter we can go there and then it variant perception is also your website that allows people to consider access it is an institutional product it is premium priced and so we're really pleased that you've allowed us to Introduce you to some of our audience, and hopefully people found this as interesting as we did. Uh, great starts, 2024, guys. Harley, I got to tell you, I'm on the back foot again I'm on the inflation front. You're 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 smacking me around. This is uh, this is not an interesting start. Jeff, I'll let you wrap it up.
0: Thanks, Mike, and thank you, Harley and Tian, for an informative and interesting conversation today. Uh, for the audience, please remember to register for our next Keeping It Simple. It's going to be on February 8th. The title is Goliath versus Goliath. Uh, Mike and Harley are going to be joined by Matt Stoller, who's the director of research at American Economic Liberties Project. They'll be discussing the growing issue of monopoly power and the role of the state. So it's sure to be another spirited and fascinating conversation. So I hope you'll all join us. And with that, I hope everyone has a great afternoon and we'll see you next time.
4: Simplify Asset Management Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for information informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis, without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management, Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management, Inc. undertakes to advise advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.